It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. What you missed this week? I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television. What you miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was another rough one for markets. The U.S. stock market had its biggest one-day drop since Black Monday in October 1987, before then recovering with its best one-day advance since 2008. As for oil, it saw its most dramatic week in recent memory, its biggest plunge since 2008. As for Treasuries, the 10-year yield rose to 1% just days after falling to record lows. All of this off of the continued global uncertainty surrounding the spread of coronavirus and questions around the response from monetary and fiscal policymakers. Now, for a public health perspective, Dr. Amish Adolja took a worried tone, saying all bets are off when it comes to the virus. I do think that we're able to blunt the force of this epidemic, but it's not going to be something that we can contain. This was a virus that was not containable in the beginning. When I was on earlier in, in January, we had talked about this being an animal to human thing. It was very limited, but we soon found out that that was wrong. And that was data coming from the Chinese that said this was an animal to human thing. And we really found that this could spread efficiently between human to humans. And when that happens, all bets are off and it's not something that's containable in that sense. Is it too late in the U.S. to avoid a situation like we're seeing in Italy? The Italy situation is something that's very mysterious to many of us. We don't quite understand what's happening. We're hearing lots of cases, uh, of lots of severe cases, people that are burdened in hospitals, doctors really uh, over, uh, overworked and unable to do anything there to deal with, the, to stem the tide of this. But that's very different from South Korea, where we have the most testing been done, and they don't have that response. So we really need to get data from Italy to understand what's going on. But, I mean, that's really the, the, the worst-case scenario is what's happening in Italy, and I think it's urgent to know what's happening there. When do we start getting uh, better data here, better testing here? And once we start getting that data, um, what becomes the reaction? When we get more, so the testing has been a really bad problem for the United States government to get out. We're starting to finally have some capacity, but it's still very constrained and it's still very bureaucratic to get a test done if you're a doctor trying to order a test for your patient. Mm -hmm. When we get testing stood up, we'll get a better understanding of how this is spreading in our communities. We hear about these hotspots in New York and hotspots in in Washington State, but there probably are many other hotspots that aren't diagnosed because this is all mixed into cold and flu season and we don't have that capacity. But once we get that, we'll know what's spreading and we'll have a better idea of the case fatality ratio. We don't know exactly where it is. You heard Dr. Fauci say 10 times worse than the seasonal flu. We'd like to get a lot of uh, specificity on that number to be confident about it. And we make a lot of assumptions about how the coronavirus is similar or dissimilar to the seasonal flu. Uh, One being that it might taper off once Mm. the warmer weather comes around. 
Is there any evidence to believe that's the case? So you have to remember there's four other coronaviruses that circulate every year, and the best extrapolation we can have is that there is that seasonality from those, from those four viruses, that they peak in the winter and spring and decrease their transmission during the summer. That's in temperate climates. Obviously, the southern hemisphere is going to have the opposite, opposite seasons to us. So we may see some tapering off. We don't know that for sure, but it's mm -hmm. based on what we know about other coronaviruses. It also looks like in warmer, we haven't really had a major sustained outbreak yet in a warm country. I mean, we do see cases in Singapore, for example, but nowhere near what we're seeing in Korea or northern Italy. Yeah, so there is a lot of differences that you're seeing around the world, and I think that some of that might have to do with weather, but it's hard to know because testing right. is so scattered, so we right. don't know who's testing what yeah. where. So when we talk about this idea of sort of mitigating the effects, the idea that is, as uh, Robert Redfield pointed out, we're sort of past containment to mitigation. Is there an example we can draw from here in the U.S. as to how that sort of plays out? Sure. So it's a 2009 H1N1 pandemic. That's something that we never tried to contain. The cases mm -hmm. occurred in Mexico. We knew that this was not going to be containable. So we quickly moved to preparing hospitals, preparing a vaccine, getting a new antiviral emergency use authorization. We did a lot of public health communication and we scaled up diagnostic testing. Uh, there were some places that closed schools and, did, and stopped mass gatherings. That soon went away when we found out the severity of the H1N1 pandemic. But that's the best example where there was not this emphasis on airport screening and travel bans and quarantines and self-isolation and contact tracing. Right. We're, we're being a lot more proactive this time around to the point where uh, in Washington, Democrats are calling for President Trump to declare a national emergency. Mm. What does that mean in practical terms to declare a national emergency when it comes to treating this? So we've have, we had a public health emergency declared a couple of weeks ago, and that's in place now. A national emergency would escalate this to a higher level. It's really never been done for an infectious disease outbreak before, and that would be more like a FEMA-type response that you see with a hurricane or a natural disaster, which would give the federal government a lot more leeway and move a lot of the bureaucracy to, to actually try and respond as quickly as possible. It triggers the Stafford, it may trigger the Stafford Act, which allows for reimbursement of states for certain expenses. So it's a whole host of things, but we've never seen it applied to an infectious disease outbreak before. Right. So does that leeway and does that federal power mean anything if there's no federal leadership? Well, we want to have a coordinated, seamless federal state cooperation. And so far, we've had differences uh, throughout that time. So I don't know how exactly that would change things. Hopefully, with the vice president in charge of this, we would have a better uh, coordination and a lot more uh, federal oversight of, of what's going on with guidance. Of course, in China, the degree of state capacity brought to bear on this in terms of travel restrictions, in terms of checking people's temperature every time they walk a few blocks down the street is uh, on a completely different level. Can we stem it in this country, even if we're not as uh, willing to go as far as the Chinese government has to curb their crisis? I don't think that that's the best way to approach this, and I don't think that the Chinese were well justified in doing that, or the Italians and what they're doing. I don't think we need to lock down cities and violate people's individual rights. I think we can do this with voluntary self dis social distancing. We can be, do, be more nuanced, not a one-size-fits-all. Each community is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. And I don't think that this would that type of thing can make things paradoxically worse because you panic the population, make it harder to get resources in, and it, and it can le really lead to disaster and cascading impacts. Like, for example, if you have a stroke, you can't get treated in some of the right. Chinese hospitals anymore. So, I mean, but when you talk about social distancing, I mean, Joe mentioned the, the March Madness tournament basically being played without fans. Are those the types of measures where we need to sort of say, let's not have large gatherings? They've canceled the New York City uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade. Are those the types of measures that can sort of be the mitigating effect? Is that effective? Yes, it is effective. Yeah. If you do it early enough and you plan and you do it with kind of the, with a lot of proactivity to it and you actually think about what it, where it fits in the context of disease transmission. So if you already have lots of transmission, it's right. going to have less impact. But if you don't have that much transmission yet, you may be able to, what we say, flatten the curve, where you have less 
less intense spike of cases. So it's more gradual over time, which allows hospitals to be able to deal with patients on a more reasonable basis. That makes sense, but we're all flying blind in terms of the number of cases. We really don't know how infected certain communities are at all. I hmm. mean, it, it seems like the number of cases is relatively low compared to a place like Italy, but that's because most people haven't been tested. And if you do want to be tested, you have to have what, been to one of the infected yeah. countries in order to qualify. The bar is so high. Right. So, that, so we don't know how well our social distancing will work because we don't know how much is actually in the community. So there may be cases that are, there may be you know, undiagnosed chains of transmission that we don't know about that are there. So I think our social distancing would be optimized if we knew exactly what the prevalence was in right. many different cities, but we don't know that. So it's our best guess. But I think for now, especially for high-risk individuals, they should not be going to mass gatherings. And we yeah. need, need to th think more about what mass gatherings we want to have. So you talked about flattening the curve, and I've heard a lot of uh, medical uh, professionals talk about this. What is the capacity, though, of the U.S. hospital system? If we do start to see a yeah. spike in cases, particularly once we actually start testing them for real, do we have the capacity to handle these cases? So we have some capacity, and hospitals can get creative with using their space, trying mm -hmm. to take places that we don't, they don't see patients and turning them into places where you can see patients flexing ICU beds. They can do a lot, but there's only a limit to that, and we do have a low per capita hospital bed rate so compared to other countries. So we are going to to get into trouble just like we have during bad flu seasons and it's going to be something very challenging and that's the most pressing thing right now is to get our hospitals ready for this flux of patients. As if central bankers weren't already feeling the pressure this year, all eyes are now on global policymakers to pad the economic shock expected from the spread of the virus. We sat down with two former central bankers, Alan Blinder and Bill Dudley, to discuss. Well, I, I wrote in the Wall Street Journal today, and this is, I think this is not what President Trump's going to talk about, that I think the most important thing we can do is get many millions of Americans tested as quickly as possible to reduce, not end, we're never going to end, but to reduce a bit the uncertainty of not knowing whether right. your grocer, your waiter, your barber, the person on the transit next to you, and so on, are carrying the virus. Nobody knows that now. We don't even know if we're carrying the virus. I certainly don't think I am. I don't have any symptoms, but we know from uh, what we're hearing from the medical people that many people are walking around with no symptoms. So I think this is it's, it's posing a clear and present health danger for sure, but I think it's also posing a clear and present economic danger right. as people get afraid to go shopping and go to restaurants and go to movies and go to sporting events and so on. Bill, I want to go to you. So the markets expect, of course, dramatic further rate cuts from the Federal Reserve. But are there other things that the Fed could be doing that aren't strictly on the rate side, more on the plumbing side, other things to keep credit and liquidity going to uh, companies and financial institutions that need it in times of stress? Well, so far, this is mostly a economic event, not a financial uh, market event in the sense of strains in the banking system. So it's very different than the financial crisis. So I think it's important not to just pull out the 2008-2009 playbook and, and assume that that's appropriate for the current set of circumstances. That said, the Fed definitely can provide liquidity if there are strains uh, in the financial market. Uh, one area where there actually is a little bit of strain right now, surprisingly, is the U.S. private market. And that has to do with the uh, positioning of hedge funds that are relative value and have you know, very leveraged books of business. And that's spilling back into the treasury market. So that's something that the Fed should probably be looking at. Okay, so that's something the Fed should be looking at. I want to bring us more uh, to a global point of view here because we heard 
Europe acting with a lot of resolve this morning. Uh, Professor Blinder, we saw Mark Carney, Angela Merkel, Christine, Le Christine Lagarde all come out and, and really talk up the need to work together and to address uh, the concerns that face the global economy. Um, how much of this is going to be coordinated with the United States? How effective can their measures be if it's not coordinated? Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm of two minds in this. First of all, it is better in terms of market psychology if you make it coordinated. But I wouldn't want to exaggerate that, and I certainly wouldn't want to re be thought of as recommending in any sense that the United States or any other country hold back right. if others won't go along. Um, that said, monetary policy, as we normally think of it, is a pretty weak read to lean on for this sort of a crisis. It is not, this is going back to what Bill just said a moment ago, this is not a case where people on, and businesses are starved for credit or credit is expensive and we need to alleviate that. The Fed knows exactly how to do that. But that is not today's problem. So I think the coordination on um, health-related issues is probably much more important than coordination on monetary policy right now. Uh, Bill, I want to go back to you because uh, today we got something sort of novel out of the U.K. where there appears to be an emerging fiscal monetary coordination. It's something that people have called for a, long, for, for a while, uh, that the idea that we maybe uh, independence is a little overrated or at times of certain crisis they need to work together and hand in hand. Do you see any merit in that and that perhaps the best way to get money into the hands of people who need it fast so that we don't see a collapse in people's income and spending is something more specifically coordinated between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve? Well, I don't think you necessarily have to have coordination at the fiscal policy stimulus and get money in people's hands. But clearly, you know, the Fed knowing what the Treasury and the administration are going to do and vice versa, it's helpful to have a coherent set of economic policies. I think the key is right now is, is two things. In addition to what Alan said about testing, I think you also want to uh, encourage people to not do things that they don't need to do in crowds to slow down the spread of the virus. The thing that's you know more dangerous now is that the U.S. healthcare system gets overwhelmed by people getting sick, like what's taking place in Italy, and that would be uh, very, very unfortunate. You know, it may be the case that the virus uh, is can't be contained, but if we can slow down the spread, uh, the healthcare system will be able to handle it uh, much better, and the consequences for Americans will be uh, less. I think on the fiscal policy side, there's a lot that you could do. I think that uh, paid sick leave, uh, extending unemployment compensation benefits, right. uh, 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 payroll tax cuts possible. Uh, I think aid to state and local governments so they don't lay off workers as their tax revenues start to fall uh, is also something worth contemplating. So, all right, so Professor Blinder, I mean, all of these uh, things that we're talking about here, these are things that uh, have been discussed openly, but we haven't seen any sort of formal proposals. I know this isn't the financial crisis, but during the financial crisis, we did have the Fed and the other central bankers almost sort of run point to a certain extent on the response. Obviously, it was a financial crisis, right. and that's why they ran point. But who's running point on this? We didn't hear from Steve Mnuchin today, at least not in any sort of extended capacity. Some of the other sort of, I guess, uh, financial leaders in our government, uh, they've also been relatively absent this. So I guess my question is, who should be running point? Is this something for the Treasury Department? Is this something for the Fed? Who? 
I think actually it's something for the president, both as a moral leader, which unfortunately we don't have right now, and as a political leader. But what I'd like to see euphemistically, because we don't actually want them to hold hands, is Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, and Mitch McConnell hold hands, again, euphemistically, agreeing on a set of fiscal measures, emergency fiscal measures, that would correspond to a number of things that are on Bill, the little list that Bill gave you might have might be different from that. Might have some other things. The one thing I want would add, I, I'm sure Bill doesn't disagree with this. He alluded to the problems of state and local governments. There's something the match that the federal government gives to Medicaid to the states mm-hmm. is crucial. And as their health expenditures burgeon. The last thing on earth we want, either from a fiscal perspective or a health perspective, is states to cut back Mm. on that. Fair enough. They all agree agree on a list and get out in front of the television cameras, figuratively, though not literally, hug each other and (laughs) announce these things. Bill, before we say goodbye to you, um, in terms of the emergency fiscal measures that uh, Professor Blinder was talking about, that Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and President Trump could come together on, if there was one immediate step they could take, what should that step be? I think it needs to be a package. So I don't think there's just one thing, but certainly paid sick leave would be a good place to start. I mean, people who have to stay home uh, need to have income, need to have resources. So I think that's very, very important. If I could make one final point, you know, we, you know, we we're comparing this to the financial crisis. This is moving a lot faster than the financial crisis. The financial crisis really started in, I, I would say, August 2007, and it didn't really hit the peak uh, until September right. of 2009. This is moving much, much faster, and we could be in a very different place even a few weeks from now. Alan, I know you've been really focusing on the importance for the uh, public health response, and obviously that's key. That being said, we do have this extraordinary financial market turmoil, a de facto crash of uh, 20% over the last 20 days, some of the highest volatility ever. How do you think about the, uh, the effect that the financial markets themselves bleed into real economic activity, that the wealth effect, volatility, concerns of people looking at their portfolios itself slows down uh, people's behavior? Well, it does. Uh, I think the – but the, the good news, so to speak, if there's any good news in this, is that those wealth effects retarding consumer spending tend to come – with lags. They're not instantaneous. Remember who owns the stock. It's the upper income people and pension funds and so on who don't react immediately by, by not buying things. The, the middle income and poor people that are living hand to mouth are not owning stocks. So for the broad public, I think it's possible that the biggest immediate effect, not the long-run effect, but the biggest immediate effect is the psychology. I don't mean to criticize Bloomberg or any of your competitive networks, but they see this on their television screens, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's kind of frightening. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't report it. Of course you should report it, because it's happening. But I don't think the big worry now is that the, you know, the median, the average American consumer is looking at 
his or her stock portfolio and because of that spending less. There will be some of that in time, but that's not what's going on right. you know, today and tomorrow. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. So what does a fiscal stimulus package to combat the effects of the virus actually look like? Henrietta Trays, Veda Partners Managing Partner and Director of Economic Policy Research, took us through the bill that's making the rounds in Washington. Um, I think that people have forgotten that Congress needs to pass legislation to change any tax policy, and the president cannot do that unilaterally. And that's really what we're running into. Um, I've been speaking with staff for the last two weeks, obviously, trying to understand where they are around coronavirus, asking if I should be using the current calendar to predict, you know, when a deadline might exist. Will they pass something before Friday when they all leave town? Um, and the answer that I've gotten from leadership in the House is that they're getting calls from members saying, you know, we don't want to be flying right now. Uh, we don't want to be coming from our districts back to D.C. We don't want to be in the very populated and crowded field, uh, cr- uh, halls of Congress. So let's disband um, as Kevin mentioned just a minute ago, maybe even be uh, outside of session until after the Easter recess, which would put you at mid-April. Wow. So all the conversations we're having is yeah. that any legislation will be weeks, if not months away. Wow. Outside of Washington until th- until after Easter, is there any way for a Congress to conduct its business remotely or virtually? That's the question. They can. Obviously, it's the 21st century. We all have phones. They could call in if they wanted to. There are robust restrictions against that. And I've asked staff whether they think those restrictions would be suspended in the Senate, for instance, um, where you have a lot of older senators and they're also traveling and flying every week to come back and forth from their districts to D.C. And the problem with suspending that requirement is that then you've opened those floodgates. And the reality is sometimes Congress doesn't want to vote. So they have a hard and fast rule that says if they're not in town and they're not physically on the House or the Senate floors, they can't vote. And suspending that now would create problems down the line. Yeah, Henrietta, you're you're dragging me down here, Henrietta, because, I mean, this isn't like a political issue. I mean, we're talking about life and death situation. And if Congress isn't able to act, this isn't just about whether the market goes up and down, but this is really about the safety or at least the perceived safety uh, of people like you and me. Let's talk about some of the policy prescriptions that have been talked about. And let's just assume for a second Congress might actually want to get on a plane and come back and vote on these things. Uh, Which sort of policy proposals do you think would actually have uh, the best chance of actually getting passed? Well, interestingly, the pieces with the most support right now, the most cemented plans that have a lot of popularity both in the business sector and in Congress, particularly amongst Democrats and some in the White House, is the plan that Democrats should be unrolling as early as tonight. And given the, you know, very problematic timeline we just walked through, they think that they could have this finalized and prepared to vote on as soon as Thursday. So something could theoretically pass if it's this House Democrats plan. That would provide unemployment insurance benefits, which would be about $30 billion for a year. It would provide um, uh, mandatory paid 
sick leave, which is about a $68 billion proposition. It would create um, a potentially expanded child care tax credit to um, help those families that have to have more child care in the event that anybody gets sick. Um, a massive infrastructure spending package. You know, the Dems rolled out a $760 billion package back in December. They'd love to see that implemented, but get a lot of pushback from Republicans. Um, the one policy provision I can tell you is not going to pass is the payroll tax cut. Mm. Um, I just saw reports that the administration is pushing a 0% payroll tax cut, and I just did the math on it. The payroll tax cut to 0% for employees and employers would amount to a bailout bigger than TARP. Wow. So yeah. I think the odds of that happening are very low. Well, this is President Trump we're talking about, so it's just a starting point in negotiations as well. Um, I want to bring in some comments that Philip Hildebrand, the BlackRock vice chairman, made uh, earlier today in calling for policymakers to step up. Take a listen. Whether we have the U.S. leadership that we did have in 2008 to sort this out, that's a big question. I think this is, this is one of the concerns that, that sort of sits in an overarching way over the whole system right. right now. Where is the leadership? Where is the U.S. leadership, which was one of the defining features of the crisis in 2008? Now, Henrietta, you were in Washington in 2008. Your time in the Senate uh, revolved around the creation and passage of TARP, as well as the auto bailout as well. When we talked about the different uh, measures that Congress could take, you didn't mention anything about specific uh, bailouts or rescues of certain industries. What is the appetite for something like that for, say, the airline industry or the cruise industry or the restaurant industry? I would say it's extremely low. I mean, if you remember how unpopular the $81 billion bailout for the auto, auto industry was, for instance, I mean, I think there's a couple senators, uh, including one prominent one from Utah, who would tell you that he doesn't want to take those votes again. Um, those are not popular packages. Um, TARP was not popular. Specific sector bailouts are not what American voters are particularly inclined to endorse. Mm. And I don't get a lot of indication of support from staff on Capitol Hill. You can see tax deferments, small scale steps targeted at those industries and specifically their employees who are directly affected by the coronavirus. But a wholesale bailout for the cruise industry right. um, is not realistic, so what, nor what, is it for shale. So, Henrietta, what could move the needle here? Are we just sort of waiting for uh, maybe some sort of uh, impact uh, to show up in actual hard economic data that would then maybe sort of force the hand of Congress? Are we waiting for other countries uh, to do stimulus and maybe we follow their lead? Is there anything here that would maybe, uh, I guess, just push things along a little bit faster? Yeah, and as Scarlett pointed out, it's exactly the correct way to think about it. If you go back to TARP and the recession and how we dealt with that, it takes months and weeks and sometimes years to pass substantial stimulus packages. We didn't get the um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act until 2009, and the recession started in 20, uh, 2007. So um, there are very slow-moving factors in D.C., and complicating this, if we're being honest, is the fact that the administration is trying to downplay how severe the coronavirus outbreak is. Is. So while the market is responding on a immediate basis, um, trying to get ahead of the economic data that we'll eventually see, that's not how folks on Capitol Hill respond. It takes um, a long time just for them to have a handle on the scope of the problem. I mean, this is not going to be an issue that's limited just to airlines and yeah. cruise ships, for instance. It's going to be your restaurants, um, anybody with seasonal retail workers, uh, regular retail workers. It, this is going to be very widespread, certain geographical right. locations are going to be hit harder than others, and they're, they're just not close to uh, wrapping their minds around it, let alone figuring out a policy response for it. Tonight's uh, 
I guess kind of a big night. I mean, we saw the momentum that Joe Biden picked up. I guess the big question is whether he can continue that momentum and effectively uh, lock away uh, this nomination. Uh, what, what are you hearing uh, with regards to his chances, Henrietta? Well, an interesting headline just crossed that the um, Republican mayor in Michigan in the fourth largest um, a city in the state has just abandoned President Trump and endorsed Joe Biden. And of course, that primary is today in Michigan. So I think the hits just keep on coming for Joe Biden. I very strongly suspect he will be the nominee. We've had 70 percent odds of that happening since January, um, based off of a couple factors that are now uh, long gone in history. But uh, my expectation is that Biden will be the nominee. And what I encourage investors to watch right now is voter turnout. The surge we're seeing in voter turnout is larger in some states than 2018, which is a wave election for the Democratic Party. And in some states, it is also larger than 2008, which is a race that obviously ushered Obama into the White House, gave the Democrats 21 House seats and eight Senate seats. Um, So that's the direction that this is going. So the momentum is clearly on Joe Biden's side. And we have a chart here that illustrates the odds of a Democrat winning the 2020 presidential election is starting to increase. So we've got the line here in blue showing 53 percent odds for a Democrat winning the odds of Republican winning the 2020 presidency, namely President Trump, coming down to 50 percent. Clearly, momentum is on the Democrat side. Is the momentum peaking for them a little bit too early here? Because there's a long way to go before November, and the president has a lot of time to to see perhaps the economy recover, to, to make some uh, good inroads when it comes to supporting the market and supporting uh, people's livelihoods uh, in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak. Yeah, this is a pretty incredible game of chicken right now. You have the Democrats who are um, very focused on coronavirus, trying to you know line up behind uh, Vice President Biden. And in the aftermath of that deluge of support he got before Super Tuesday, there was immediate concerns out of the Biden campaign to say, how do we live up to this hype? How do we keep this going? Because this is just a tremendous showing in 36 hours or so. Um, and they do need to keep that going. Coronavirus could either be um, something that helps the Democrats or something that helps President Trump. If it really does evaporate and is yeah. not the problem everybody's expecting, it could help with uh, President Trump's re-election, but we think it would be uh, Joe Biden's. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.